Good morning again, everyone, and happy Easter as today we celebrate the most holy and by far the most important day in, in the history of, well, in the history of history itself, the resurrection from the dead of Jesus, the hope and Savior of the world. It is the resurrection and its historicity that separates Christianity from every other religion, every other faith tradition that's ever been contrived. It's, it's the authenticity and provability of the resurrection that separates Jesus from every other faith leader, faith healer, and faith system known. Christianity itself, the faith of 31% of the people on the face of the earth, nearly 2.4 billion of us, hangs in the balance on this one issue. Its importance can't be overstated. If you think I'm making too big of a deal of the resurrection, then take the Apostle Paul's words for it. Paul himself, once the highest of leaders in the temple in Jerusalem, a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee among Pharisees, Paul, one of the first persecutors of the early church, but Paul who met the resurrected Jesus that would go on to be the church's great evangelist, he would write more than half of your New Testament. It was this Paul who wrote to the church in the city of Corinth that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. Paul would say this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. My friends, I am here to convince you today that you are no fool and you are not to be pitied because Jesus is alive and well, and if you would make the very conscious decision to search for, find, and follow him, you too will find life both now and forevermore. That's what we've been about here at Menham Hills over these last few weeks. We've been on this, well, this metaphorical spring break road trip together towards this elusive thing called life. Now, I'm not just talking about life in terms of like its physicality, drawing breaths and beating hearts. I mean the kind of life Jesus has and promised we could have, life abundant, life free of, of, of worry and stress and fear and anxiety, a life exuding joy over circumstance, love over lament, promise over pain, a life full of purpose and meaning. And that life, well, I believe it's found I think we've discovered this, just as our singers and songwriters and poets have sung, painted and proclaimed over the centuries. It, it, it's found the way the writers of Scripture have penned and prophesied over the millennia. It's found as we leave the comfort and security of here, and we follow Jesus to wherever it is He leads. Specifically now, We've been trying to follow him down what I've been calling the four roads of Easter, the roads and the paths and the walkways that Jesus took during his Passion Week, the last week of his earthly life. Today, though, today we're going to take a look at that last road, and it's by far the least known road, but we have to take it in order to arrive at our destination. So jump in with me to the story of Easter morning. Mark, he was one of the four gospel writers who likely got this firsthand account from Peter. He's a disciple of Peter's. And he writes that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Well, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's it. That's how Mark's gospel ends, which seems kind of crazy, right? Like if you're going to start a new religion based on a, a, an important event, it seems like you would end the story with some more pomp and circumstance. This story just kind of ends mysteriously, almost unceremoniously. And what do we have? We have a, a bunch of trembling and bewildered women. They're fleeing the scene. And note, as they do, they're not boldly proclaiming what they've seen, they are saying nothing to anyone because they're scared to death. Why? Well, because what they've seen makes no sense. You see, these are the same women that had seen Jesus die. They had witnessed all of it. Crown of thorns, nail-pierced hands, spear thrust through his side. And these women, though followers of Jesus, right, Though they'd followed Jesus and they'd been blessed by his teaching, they'd been awed by his miracles, and they had hoped he would be Israel's long-awaited for Messiah. Well, they show up at that tomb that day, and I love the detail. I love that it's the women, because the men, they've all slept in this day. The women, they show up that day not expecting an empty tomb. They don't show up ready to run a countdown to a sunrise and then a Jesus rise. They show up that day to embalm a body as dead as their hopes. Why? Well, I guess two reasons. In their minds, right, the messiahs or messiahs, they don't suffer and die. So they've got to be thinking, well, he can't be the one. And I guess the second reason is every other person they've ever seen that has died stayed dead. Now, the men, right, the men, they're home sleeping in. The women, they run in fear. Luke, he, he was this first century Greek physician that sets out to write a really detailed biography of Jesus based on research and first-person interviews. Luke writes about these events, and he says that when the women returned to the disciples with the news of what they had seen, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense which, of course, is what this news would seem to anyone, right? I mean, if you're a person who acknowledges the veracity of Jesus' teaching and the moral compass of his, his words, but you struggle with making sense of the resurrection, well, this morning that makes you like every single one of his followers that first Easter morning. I mean, heck, if you struggle with the concept of resurrection but you don't dismiss it as nonsense, you might have greater faith than those that walked with Jesus every day because that's what they thought it was. Nevertheless, though, likely more in an effort to find out what had happened to the body of Jesus, thinking perhaps someone had stolen it, Luke tells us that Peter got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Again, 
just like Mark recorded the women doing. Luke records Peter went away not proclaiming, hallelujah, Jesus is alive. He went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were going to make up a religion, if you were going to make up a resurrection, would you tell the story of its most triumphant moment as a story of doubt? Because that's what this is. That's what the people closest to Jesus had on that first Easter morning. They had doubt and disbelief. Think about, think about it this way. If you, if, you were going, if you were going to make up a story about a resurrection in the first century, I'll tell you right now something you wouldn't do. You wouldn't have every biographer write that it was women who were the first witnesses of the event because the men had given up so much hope they slept in. And here's why. Because in the first century, a woman's testimony meant nothing. It was inadmissible in court, for example. You know, if you committed a crime and the only witnesses were women, it was likely you were going to get off scot-free because their account of what happened didn't count. But apparently, God thinks about women a little differently. You see, the only plausible explanation for why all four gospel writers say the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women is that it was women who found the empty tomb, and the tomb was, in fact, empty. You see, when Jesus died, even though he had repeatedly predicted it, none of his followers at that moment said, you know, this is all going according to plan. None of his followers thought Jesus' death was a good thing. In fact, we're told when it became clear he was going to die, all the disciples deserted him. The picture we get in all four of the Gospels is, is that his followers were disheartened, dismayed, disappointed, disillusioned, dispirited. But then all of a sudden something happened, and they weren't. Suddenly, as a, as a matter of historical record, this same group of people became convinced that Jesus had been resurrected, and they were now motivated to spread this news at enormous cost to themselves. It's funny, some people think that in ancient times, people were gullible. They were ready to believe anything. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. Ancient people were not stupid. Ancient people understood like we do, that dead people tend to stay dead. I heard the story this week of a woman who had looked out her window and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of a neighbor's pet rabbit. Well, her family didn't get along with these neighbors, so she knew this was going to be a complete disaster. She ran outside, grabbed a broom, she started pummeling her dog until it dropped the dead rabbit from its mouth. And seeing it, now she panicked. She grabbed the rabbit, she took it inside, gave it a bath, she blow-dried it to its original fluffiness, combed it until the rabbit looked like a rabbit again. And she went over and she snuck it into the neighbor's yard and propped it back up in its cage. About an hour later, she hears screams coming from the woman next door. And so she runs outside to ask her neighbor what was going on. Our rabbit, our rabbit, her neighbor cried. He died two weeks ago. We buried him, and now he's back. You see, people in the ancient world knew dead rabbits stay dead. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright notes, there were many messianic movements in the first century, but in every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome as Jesus did, and not in not one of them, in not one single case, do you hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead? And it's because they knew better. Well, why did they know better? Well, because 
Resurrection is so easy to disprove, but something was different about Jesus. See, as we would expect, Jesus' followers believed that it was over in the wake of his execution. But then two things happened. First, witnesses saw that the tomb was empty. There was no body anywhere. I mean, the Romans would have produced his body if they could have just to put the movement down. But second, Jesus appeared to his followers. It was the combination of these two things, these two factors, that was so overwhelming. The Apostle Paul wrote within two decades of Jesus' life that the risen Christ had appeared to Peter, to the remaining disciples, and then to more than 500 others. In fact, he says, if you don't believe me, go and ask them yourself. See, it's important to get the timing on this right. The church did not create or give us the story of the resurrection. That's what we tend to think, but that's not what happened. It's the veracity of the resurrection that created and gave us the church. Before the resurrection, there was no church. There were no believers. Jesus was just going to go down as another failure in a long list of would-be messiahs, despite everybody's hopes to the contrary. Which brings us, it brings us to the end of our road trip. The last road, the, the final road, the one that ends in life. Luke goes on. He records for us that right after these events, the women in fear, remember the stunned silence that they, they, they have. Peter, he's wandering the streets, wandering to himself. Well, it was then, that same day, that two of them, two disciples, two as of unnamed, now unnamed disciples, they were going to a village called Emmaus. They were quite famously on the road to Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Super interesting detail. It was a seven-mile trip from Jerusalem down to Emmaus. It wasn't six and it wasn't eight. Seven. If you know anything about the number seven in the scriptures, the number seven is usually associated with the concept of completeness or something being finished. Think about this, right? God creates the world in six days and he rests on the seventh. Some of you know the Old Testament story of Joshua. He marches around the city of Jericho six days, and on the seventh, the walls come down. It was a seven-mile journey because something, as Jesus famously uttered in his dying breath on, on the cross, something had just been finished. Luke tells us that they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, we don't know what it was that kept them from recognizing him, but maybe it was the same thing that keeps us from recognizing him. They had expectations and agendas for Jesus, and Jesus had not met them. It's very hard for dead messiahs to do that, right? He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas said, or asked him, are, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, and see here comes the expectation and the agenda and the disappointment. It's so ironic, right? You have two disciples that are in desperate search for truth, but they're blinded as the truth walks right next to them. But we had hoped 
that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. But then some of our companions, they went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. And so, that's why they're on this road trip. You see, this is a road trip that's going in the wrong direction, away from Jerusalem. If they had believed all that Jesus had told them, if they, if they were serious believers in a resurrection, they wouldn't be on the road to Emmaus. They'd be remaining in the city. But see, they're going in the other direction, away from the truth. It's just another powerful example that for every one of us who has ever given up or given in or turned back, Jesus is still in the business of chasing people down. In fact, think about it. Lou tells us this is the very first thing Jesus does post-resurrection. Jesus takes to the road to go and seek the lost, those going the wrong way. You know, he's still doing that this morning. And so Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? Starting in Genesis, where maybe Jesus pointed out to them that it was him who God was referencing when he told the serpent right after sin entered the world that I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Note that, the offspring of a woman, not of a man. A virgin concept right there, right at the fall. God tells him, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Maybe Jesus shared with them as they walked that he was uh, he, maybe he shared with them the story about the patriarch of their faith, Abraham, who was about to sacrifice his son, Isaac. But just at that very moment, as he lifted up the knife, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Maybe Jesus explained to him that this was a foreshadowing of him, the Lamb of God who'd be slain for the sins of the world. I mean, he could have been explaining to them how their great and holy observance of Passover that they had just done, where they had slain a Passover lamb and the blood of that innocent lamb was applied to the lintels of their door, how now he was that innocent lamb, one without sin whose blood would be applied to the doorposts of the hearts of the guilty so that death might pass over them. He had to have reminded them of what their great prophet Isaiah spoke regarding him, that he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces, that surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds were healed. You see, guys, Jesus, Jesus was not asking them to just believe Jesus was asking them to believe based on what had been seen, shared, written, documented, and fulfilled. See, perhaps they were kept from recognizing him at first 
so that they would have the opportunity to see him with real clarity. You might remember Jesus told his uh, disciple Thomas, the one who doubted, Jesus said to him, because you've seen me now, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. On the road to Emmaus, we find the first two men to come to know Jesus the way you and I need to, through the veracity of his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus doesn't want us to believe in the resurrection because we have faith. He wants to have faith in us to have faith in the resurrection because he's fulfilled well over 300 prophecies. A number of years ago, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. It set out the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling even only eight of the prophecies fulfilled by the life of Jesus. The mathematical probability is 1 in 10 to the 17th. That's 1 in a 10 followed by 17 zeros. Or approximately how many silver dollars you would need to cover the face of the entire state of Texas two feet deep. You see, we don't believe in the resurrection because we have faith. We have faith in the resurrection because eyewitnesses told us so. Matthew was an eyewitness to it. He wrote all about it. We believe Mark, who got it firsthand from Peter, that was at the tomb that day. We believe because of Luke, this highly educated man, that he investigated all these claims, and then Luke attested to their truth. We believe because John, who was another eyewitness, he was exiled to the Greek island of Patmos by the Romans as part of their persecution of Christians. We believe because John willingly went to not just exile, but to his death. He went on to write four different books to attest to Jesus' resurrection. We believe in the resurrection because Peter said it was the resurrection that made him go from not only unbelieving and denying and hiding to one, to one who would write letter after letter to the churches and would be willing to be crucified upside down because he would not deny what he saw. And why upside down? Remember, this is the same Peter that that fled and denied. Upside down because he was so sure of the divinity of Jesus now that he said he was unworthy to die in the same fashion as Jesus. Blaise Pascal, this 17th century philosopher, famously said it this way, I believe in witnesses who are willing to have their throats cut. Jesus wants to believe in them too. See, this is what Jesus is sharing with these men on the road to Amazus and what he wants us to share with one another to encourage one another with these truths on our journey towards life. Luke records that as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and he was at the, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Luke writes, it was then that their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. You see, here's the thing about resurrection and life. It's another lesson learned on this road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus shows that the kind of life that Jesus has promised us, it is not simply to be found later after we die in a world yet to be, but it's found here, today, before we die, right now in the world in which we currently dwell. Think about it. 
Jesus does not come and greet them as a ghost or floating in the air or in a cloud or in a bush. Jesus walks with them in resurrected human form. Because resurrection is not just about life after death. It is, but it's not limited to it. Resurrection is about life then and life right here, right now. This is one of the deepest truths of the Christian faith. Resurrection does not mean disembodied evacuation to some other place. It's also all about this place, this world, and this life too. I mean, it's just so easy to, think, to see. Think about Jesus post-resurrection, right? What's the first thing he does? Well, he goes on a road trip in search of those going the wrong way. What does he do with them? He, he, he talks with them. He walks with them. He breaks bread with them. He eats with them. Anybody remember? Jesus has this, this classic line, this profound saying, this brilliant truth that he, usher, uh, that he utters when he shows up to the disciples hiding behind the locked door in the upper room. After conquering death, what's the first thing that Jesus said to them? Do you have anything to eat here? Another time when he joins them on the beach and surprises them for breakfast. Friends, yeah, have any fish? And then he eats breakfast with his disciples. You see, Jesus is not floating around playing a harp. He, he's not a ghost. Jesus is with people. He's walking and talking and eating and living. I heard it put this way this week. Resurrection is not just for after we die. Resurrection is also embodied, active, engaged, new kind of physical life in this world. Friends, we do not gather this Easter to only celebrate someday that we leave. We gather because Jesus has overcome death and is starting something new in this world, the one we call home now, today. And we're included and we're invited. You see, the big story of Easter, what we see on the road to Emmaus, is not that someday we abandon this place. The big story is that God has not abandoned this place, but that something new has begun. He's putting things back together again, renewing, redeeming, restoring, and reconciling this world and you to God. The Bible, it, it begins in a garden in Genesis with God dwelling there with his people in this world. And in Revelation, where does it end? It ends in a garden with God once again dwelling with his people. And where? In this world. Resurrection announces that there is a new creation bursting forth right here and right now in the midst of this one. The road to Emmaus proves it. And that's true for the world, and it's true for and within you. Resurrection life now and forevermore. Jesus proclaimed that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, this good news. Jesus says it's at hand. The kingdom of God is, is not for later. It's for now. And so where is it? Well, here's what Jesus said. He said the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. Listen now. For indeed, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is within you. 
there's new life available to you, resurrected life. I mean, it's almost like he's saying something crazy like, you, you could be born again. Oh, wait, that's right. He did say that. And it all starts on Easter morning with an open tomb, new life bursting forth into the old. You know what resurrection means? It means that this life matters, that this world matters too, that there's something new springing forth within it, within this life, our world, and within us. It means then what we do, how we live matters. It means that what we think and feel and say, it matters. What we do with our bodies, what we do to others, it matters. Who we help, what we forgive, how we share, how we spend, how we steward, what we give, it all matters now. You see, resurrection, resurrection means that we do what we do in this world goes on, lives on into the next. I heard the question asked this week. This is a good question. Is what you're giving your life to right now the kind of thing that when a new creation comes in full and takes over, when death is finally fully gone and the only thing that's here is beautiful and good and true, will what you've given your life to, will that endure and go on into the world that God's redeeming that began with the empty tomb? You see, for the first Christians, resurrection for them was not about a celebration of heaven. It was the celebration of a new kind of life which began for them right now. Peter put what he discovered this way. He said, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Resurrection is not just the hope that you will see your grandmother again. It is more than that. That's my hope. But it is more. It means that for you today, you can be reborn. You can get a fresh start, a new slate, the first day of a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. This is what the empty tomb means for you. This is the offer of resurrection life made to you. You see, it turns out that Christianity is not primarily about a destination. It's about a journey, a walk, a road trip towards something called life. And Jesus is calling us out onto it with him. This road to Emmaus shows us Jesus, Jesus leading some hopeless followers through doubt to life. Jesus walks with them and shows them not to doubt the resurrection, but to use the resurrection, the proof of it, right, to make them doubt their doubts. Because once they know, and all the others that, that were there, once they knew the resurrection was real and true, all of their lives changed. J.D. Greer gave this great definition of faith. He says, when the, faith is when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. See, that's what happened on the road to Emmaus. The unexplainable, right, about life met the undeniable truth of the resurrection. And this journey towards life, it starts like every journey with one small step. 
that one small step of faith over doubt. Charles Spurgeon, he used to say that doubt, the kind the early disciples had, the kind that we often have, he said it was like a a foot poised. He said you pick it up and you can either go forwards or backwards with it. He said some people pick up that foot and their doubt pushes them backwards towards unbelief and death. But he he said that it's true that you, you can never actually take a step forward until you pick up your foot. You leave here and start on the journey to there. Today, you see, the road to Emmaus asks us to pick up that foot. And in the midst of all of our doubt, the unexplained things, we choose to step forward in faith of the resurrection. We do as Jesus said. We repent. We change the way we think. We believe in Him, on Him, and we live. You see, resurrection is available for you. But not just that. It's available in you. Come and live it. Experience it in your home, in your mind, in your marriage, with your children, at your office. Let it overwhelm your fear and worry. Let it reframe and give meaning to your work and your walk because Easter is not about life available to you someday. It's about life available to you this day, this Easter Sunday. Take that first step. Let this be your testimony from death to life because resurrection life starts today and it all starts with one small step onto the road of life. Happy Easter, Mendham Hills. Go today and live.